Well, good morning, everyone. And I'm going to take this out of my ear because I just remembered it was still there. It's been a bit of a morning this morning. And uh, so if, you, if there's a little bit of an audio delay on my lips, I apologize for that. One of our computers decided to act up on us this morning, so I have a little bit more adrenaline than I usually do when I begin to preach this morning. So we'll see how it goes. But I think I'm good now. It's a nice time of prayer there just to settle everything down and get ready to get into the Word of God. We're doing a series on 316s, and uh, Chris Weir uh, started us out a couple of weeks ago with uh, holding on to what you have attained. That is uh, Philippians 3.16. And then last week we looked at Ruth 3.16 and all that the man has done for us and the kinsman redeemer of Boaz and how we have a kinsman redeemer in Jesus. And this week we are looking at James 3.16. And so you can look there. And James 3.16 around this text is talking about the need for true wisdom. James 3.16 reads this way. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Now, some of you might immediately wonder who or what I had in mind when I chose this text. Sorry, can you just turn the room down a little bit? I'm getting a lot of, I don't need to hear myself. <laughs> um, now, some of you might immediately wonder who or what I had in mind when I chose this text. You might think, reading James 3.16, does he know what's going on in my family right now? Jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, and every vile practice? Does he know what's going on at my office at work? Is, is there like some sort of subtle message here that Pastor Paul is trying to get across to us? Um, does he, is he speaking to our political climate? Is he speaking to the animosity and polarization that seems to be growing between different ideologies? Is he talking about Twitter? Is he talking about a Facebook argument that maybe he was part of this week? And the answer to that is yes, all of those things. Because the reality is, as James here speaks to the difference between worldly wisdom and true wisdom, where worldly wisdom prevails, there is jealousy and selfish ambition and disorder and every vile practice. This verse could be about seasons of conflict in my own family, or about situations I've faced in previous jobs in my workplaces, or even been on the edge of that in this ministry. It does touch on churches and Christians, and that's why James wrote, writes it. The lack of true wisdom, as James identifies as a problem here, creates deep-seated strife and conflict. And when we abandon heavenly wisdom, we find ourselves, as the writer Cap Stewart says, employing battle tactics we normally would never find defensible. And unfortunately, even as Christians, even in churches, we find ourselves using battle tactics that we would never normally find defensible. We express outrage over every new infraction that we see in the news or on social media, forgetting that we are not to give in easily to anger or to imitate the evils of outrage culture or victim culture. We fight and we quarrel with our opponents, forgetting that such skirmishes stem from selfish motives and that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone. We find ourselves mocking those that we are in opposition with, using sarcastic memes or name-calling and condescending language, forgetting that we are to communicate with gentleness and respect and to walk with wisdom towards outsiders by letting our speech always be gracious, First Peter in Colossians says. 
The problem is we are not born wise, and we are daily in danger of falling back into the old habits of the old flesh. This is why we end up in these situations of strife and jealousy and conflict, because we apply fleshly wisdom to our situations rather than heavenly wisdom. The first sin was a sin of foolish rebellion. We abandoned wisdom when we decided that we were wiser than God and valued our own capacity above his sufficiency, and that first sin has never left us. Genesis 3, 6 says, The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. So we see here right at the beginning that mankind had a desire to be wise in their own eyes, that they wanted that wisdom for themselves. The first trick of our enemy was to question the words of God. You remember? Did God really say? That's Satan's first trick. He'll question what God actually said. But the second trick of our enemy was to convince us that we could possess the wisdom of God without the need of God. And that is simply untrue. And the story of humanity since then has been the story of our foolishness apart from God. The behavior of the world apart from God, James describes as jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, vile practice. It's boastful. It's false to the truth. This is not wisdom from above, he says, but earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And there's an important warning there in the escalating description of earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, which we will come to shortly. But James is a book with a lot to say about true wisdom. He opens his letter by saying, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And so James 3.16, and a lot of James, is about wisdom. Earthly wisdom versus heavenly wisdom. And that's what we're going to look at today as we consider James 3.16. We are looking not for the wisdom of man, but for the wisdom that we may receive from God. Let's just pray as we open up his word. Father God, we've all been in this situation before. Some of us might be in it right now, where we are relying on our own wisdom, where we are acting out of the wisdom of our flesh, and it is causing jealousy and strife and discord. And that could be in family, it could be at work, it could be even in the church, it could be among Christians. And so we look to James now, in your word, by your Holy Spirit, to give us wisdom from above, that we would know what this wisdom is and what its characters and qualities are, as James describes them to us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to read the the whole text around James 3.16 so that we get the context. It's just 13 to 18 that I'm reading, and it helps us understand why he says what he says about earthly wisdom in 3.16. James writes, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the true wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace." 
So there's the contrast. There is earthly wisdom, and there is wisdom from above. And that's what we are looking for, right? We're looking for that wisdom from above. That is what is going to set us apart and is going to deliver us from the selfish ambition and vile practices that wisdom of the world leads us into. So if we just look here, James gives us a very helpful description of what wisdom from above should look like. As we go through life, as we encounter opposition, as we engage with each other in terms of expressing wisdom and wanting to be wise, then these characteristics are a kind of test to see whether the wisdom that we are giving or the wisdom that we are hearing or the engagement that we're observing is truly a heavenly wise engagement or whether it is earthly. Because James says this is how you tell whether it's heavenly wisdom or not. First of all, he says it's pure. James describes the wisdom of God as being pure. True wisdom is not tainted by any earthly or unspiritual thing. And it's the first and most obvious test of wisdom. If our words or actions contain jealousy or selfish ambition, in other words, we are serving ourselves, or if our supposedly spiritually wise course of action contains vile activity, then it's not pure and it's not from above. The, the word hagnos, pure, means free of every fault. It's immaculate or clean. And we could use some cleanness in our cultural discourse right now today, couldn't we? Wouldn't it be nice if we could go on Twitter or Facebook and find some cleanness in the discourse that's taking place, in the political conversations, in the cultural conversations? Even in our conflicts with each other, in both our small disagreements and in our worst arguments, it would be refreshing if they could just be clean, if I let down the many guards that I have in place for my social media consumption and I start reading the arguments and often hate-filled comments in certain forums, I literally come away from that session feeling unclean, like I need to take a shower or somehow scrub out my head or wash my eyes or something because I generally have a rule where I don't read the comments of any kind of post that people disagree with, because as soon as you start reading the comments, you might as well just, you know, say goodbye to your joy for the rest of the day, because you realize either how ignorant people are, how hateful people are, or how belligerent people are as they write and engage on social media. But James here says that wisdom that's from above, as you are giving input into situations, it needs to be pure, it needs to be clean. If we're applying it, it will be not tarnished in that way. It won't be tainted. The connection between purity and wisdom runs deep in Scripture. It's interesting that in Proverbs, the book of wisdom, we read in Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And, and you've probably heard that before. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But then look at Psalm 19.9. Psalm 19.9 says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the fear of the Lord is clean. This connection between Cleanliness and purity and wisdom is tied up in our reverence of God, and that's why wisdom that is from above is obviously clean, because reverence of God is the beginning of wisdom, and reverence of God is clean. 
So how about the situations in your life right now? As, as you try to walk wisely and righteously as a disciple of Jesus, are your thoughts, your motives, your words, your relationships, even your conflicts and oppositions, are they clean? Are they pure? Because if they're not, then that's the first place you need to spend some time before re-engaging. If, if your engagement with other people is not clean in the wisdom that you are supposedly bringing, then you are not engaging with the wisdom that is from above. So first, go back and clean up your act to make sure that your wisdom is not coming from your flesh rather than from above. But secondly, James says that wisdom from above is peaceable. Walking with wisdom, engaging with others wisely, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook or here in the church or in your family or at work, even when disagreeing with them, wisdom from above is characterized by peacefulness, peacemaking. Matthew 5, 9, you remember, says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The opposite of peaceable is quarrelsome, picking fights, looking for conflict, pressing the attack. Wisdom that is from above does not take that course. I remember at one time, I don't even know because I don't watch hockey anymore, but I remember at one time they, they put in an instigator penalty in hockey for fights. So it used to be the hockey play, you'd be at a fight and a hockey game would break out, and uh, they would, the two guys would be fighting and they'd both get whatever, two minutes for fighting or four minutes for fighting or roughing or whatever. But I remember at one point they put in an instigator rule where one guy got extra if the ref decided that he had instigated it. Who started it? Sure, you're both fighting, you're both in the quarrel, you're both opposed, but who's the instigator? Who started it? And that's what this is about. Wisdom from above does not instigate. Wisdom from above is peaceable. It's not quarrelsome. It doesn't go around looking for a fight. It doesn't wake up in the morning and say, what can I complain about on Facebook today? What can I call out in my politics, in my government? Or what can I, you know, make a big deal about today? We all have bad days. I get it. Right? We get up on the wrong side of the bed, or somebody rains on our parade. There's days when we're just plain grumpy, and when we're grumpy, we pick stupid fights, and we think we'll feel better if we're mean towards someone else. But we know that that is not how we're supposed to behave, because we call it getting up on the wrong side of the bed. We already know that we did it wrong right from the beginning. So we can ask ourselves, in our wisdom, in our engagement with others, are we characterized day by day by being peacemakers and not quarrelsome, not picking fights? Do you engage in finding peace with those who act and think differently than you? Are you always, or are you always angry when you engage with those people? Or do you actually refer to them as those people? Are you picking fights to argue with them? That is not godly wisdom at work, James says. That's not heavenly wisdom. He goes on, he says it's not only pure and peaceable, he says heavenly wisdom and wisdom that is from above is gentle. Peaceable speaks to the aim of our engagement, to make peace, ending strife and ending disunity. But gentleness speaks to how we engage. We do not engage with others violently or harshly or disrespectfully, but gently. It's a simple test that Jim, James gives us. How would people describe your words and your attitudes as you engage with them? If you were to go around and ask both friends and enemies, so to speak, those who are like you and those who are very different, would their testimony of your engagement with them be gentleness? Yeah, we don't get along, we don't agree, but he's never mean about it. He's always gentle, right? Or he's kind. How we engage is gentleness. Yet often, how often are we instead harsh or insulting or critical with our words when we run into opposition? We are trying to 
engage with people, and we're trying to win by mocking or destroying rather than win them by wooing and by persuasion. James says that's the wisdom of the world that would be mocking and harsh and ungentle, but wisdom that is from above is always gentle. In Acts 21, when Paul visits Jerusalem, we're told that all the city was stirred up and they ran and seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and they were seeking to kill him, beating him until the guards arrived. That's in Acts 21, verses 29 to 32. But, but understand this, after all of that happens to Paul, when he has his chance to address these people who dragged him out of the temple and beat him and were trying to kill him, he opens up his speech in chapter 22. He says, brothers and fathers, listen to me. They're not his enemy. They're his brothers and his fathers. He addresses them with kindness. He, he isn't trying to get them punished for their actions or wound them in retaliation. He wants restored relationship, and he's gentle as he engages even with his enemies. How are we doing in terms of our wisdom and how we react to those that oppose us? Even those who wound us deeply, are we gentle in response? James goes on, this godly wisdom is also open to reason. Since the rise of social media in the last 15 years, there's been sort of a heightened awareness that various uh, cultural um, people who look at culture, people who look at society, people who are engaged in studying communication, there's been a heightened awareness of the dangers of tribalism and ideological encampment that becomes very obvious in the online world. If you just look at the Google searches and the frequency of searches for terms like confirmation bias or looking up a search to understand the Facebook algorithm that decides what posts you see and what posts you don't see to create an echo chamber, those studies and people looking into that area have increased by 10 to 15 times in the last decade. If you go back to, you know, 2004, 2005, people looked up echo chamber and confirmation bias and those things. You know, they might search on those things about maybe 10 times a day. Well, now they're searched 150, you know, 200 times a day. People are looking up to see what is going on. Why are there these tribes and ideological encampments where we are polarized? Increasingly, we are becoming entrenched in a specific way of thinking, and the very tools we use for dialogue are being manipulated to increase our entrenchment. We seek to agree with the sentiments we already prefer, and we avoid or discredit any sentiment that seems to threaten what we've already confirmed. It's interesting, though, as the world presses deeper and deeper into that, James says here that wisdom that's from above is open to reason. Heavenly wisdom is open to reason. It's willing to hear the truth, even if the truth is not a truth we particularly like, or even if that truth comes from a source that we may be instinctively opposed to. This openness to reason carries implied humility, a willingness to yield if proven wrong. Godly wisdom is able to penetrate our own confirmation bias, our own echo chambers, to challenge our own assumptions as much as we challenge the assumptions of others. Godly wisdom reads both the National Post and the Toronto Star. Godly wisdom considers the solutions offered by both conservatives and liberals. Do you do that when trying to apply wisdom to your circumstances? Do you challenge your own ideology? Do you challenge your own tribe? I find I have to do that more and more, even with tribes I would dearly love to agree with, like evangelical Christianity. 
I have to challenge my own tribe all the time when I see the things that are being posted or said or comments made, whether it's about a pandemic or a president or a prime minister or a people. Even if it comes from what seems to be a tribe I would agree with, I have to challenge it if it is not true and gentle and peaceable and wise. And at the same time, people whose ideologies I would not agree with at all, I find I do have to sometimes support their aims when their aims are true and good. Even though it's not people who I would normally align myself with, they still may be after good things. And where they are after truth and goodness, I have to align. Because all good and all truth and all gifts are heavenly. All truth is God's truth, no matter where you find it. So do you do that when you are engaged wisely with people around you and with the culture? We have to apply this openness to reason to ourselves, to challenge ourselves, and sometimes even to challenge our own tribe, and to allow ourselves to be convinced when we hear the truth. Fifthly, James says that wisdom that is from above is full of mercy. This is the complementary stance of openness to reason. In other words, as much as we are open to self-examination and self-awareness and changing our point of view, as much as we are open to being convinced by the truth, James says that our wisdom should also be sensitive to and aware and merciful towards the experience of others. So openness to reason is about our awareness of ourselves, full of mercy is awareness of others, and aware, being merciful towards others as they express their experience. Wisdom that is full of mercy is aware of and understanding that there are many different life experiences different than our own, that there are many situations and circumstances that we have never encountered and that we cannot fully speak into the way others have, that others are shaped by forces and influence that we have little comprehension of, and therefore, we are sympathetic to their plight. We're understanding of their situation, being perhaps very different than our own. Their experience may allow them to speak with greater clarity and accuracy and perspective than our own experience. Full of mercy means we are not so full of ourselves that we can't empathize with others. Philippians 2, 3 captures this. Paul writes in Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition, there's that selfish ambition that James was talking about, or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. How does this apply to wisdom? It means that when a single mom is telling you what life is like as a single mom and what she needs, you don't argue and say, no, single mom, I'm a married white male, you don't need that, I'm going to tell you what you need. No, 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 you're full of mercy and you don't count yourself higher than others, you listen to the single mom and what she needs and how she is expressing her experience in the world. Who I am is not who other people are, and I don't get to count my opinion of things higher than other people who have walked places I've never walked. So godly wisdom is full of mercy. mercy that, or wisdom that is from above is full of mercy towards others and counting their experiences more highly than our own, especially when we know that they've been places we haven't been. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have anything to say or no wisdom to contribute at all, but James says that our wisdom should be characterized by mercy towards those that we're counseling and engaging with. 
And so do we bring as much mercy with our wisdom and as much compassion with our wisdom as we bring facts and answers? And too often I find, I think I have a lot of facts and I have a lot of answers and I have less mercy and compassion than I should have when I'm engaging with others. Wisdom that is nothing but data and debate without compassion and mercy is not wisdom from above, but earthly wisdom. As we talked a few weeks ago during our message on the Great Commission, the role of any disciple of Jesus is to cross borders with the gospel. And that's what mercy is about in terms of wisdom. Mercy is about crossing borders in our engagement with others from other tribes and other ideologies and other worldviews that are foreign to us, but we're willing to cross the border and listen with mercy to their stories and their views and to count them higher than ourselves before we speak. Who will show mercy to the lost, to the battered and the beaten, to the enslaved in our culture? My unwillingness to show mercy outside of my own frame of reference is a representation of my own inability to understand God's mercy towards me. We show mercy as God has shown us mercy. As I'm reminded of what mercy God has shown me through Jesus, I realize what mercy I owe others. Sixthly, and I have to speed up here because there's a few, and I get shorter. It's okay, we're almost done now. But sixthly, James says that our wisdom from above should bear good fruit. It says, as we are engaged with others, as we are counseling, as we are discussing, as we are talking, as we are engaging, our wisdom should bear good fruit. It should be evident by good fruit. And I think it's almost impossible that James is not in some sense referring to the same fruit in the same spiritual sense that Paul lists them in Galatians 5, to 23. You know the fruit of the Spirit, right? And I think that's what James is referring to here. He's saying the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And so as we engage, these are what should be bearing fruit in our language and in our words. If we're engaging with others in godly wisdom, all of these things will be evident. This would be what characterizes our speech and our actions in wisdom. Fruit gives evidence of what the tree is. And so if you want to know where your wisdom is rooted, then look at the fruit your wisdom is bearing. Is it kindness and love and gentleness and peace and patience? Because if it's not those fruit, then your wisdom may be rooted somewhere other than in the Spirit. It may not be heavenly wisdom. Seventh, James says that heavenly wisdom that is from above is impartial. And we touched on this one already with open to reason, but godly wisdom is not tribal. It's not ideologically rooted. Godly wisdom is impartial to who is saying the thing or even what other things may be clouded around the issue. Godly wisdom is impartial and able to penetrate to the matter at hand and not be influenced or swayed by sources or circumstances that aren't pertinent to the matter of truth at hand. Fleshly wisdom, on the other hand, discredits information or experiences simply because the source is considered an opponent. It's not impartial, it's highly partial. If your wisdom and your engagement with others is highly partial and is based on the source of who that person is or the source of the information then that's fleshly wisdom. In that it doesn't matter to some people how true something Donald Trump says simply because Donald Trump said it. They must oppose it. They're not impartial. And both sides do it. It can be said the same for Joe Biden or for Justin Trudeau or for Aaron O'Toole. There is a kind of wisdom out there that opposes something simply because it's come from a certain tribe or a certain camp 
or a certain ideology. But James here says that godly wisdom doesn't do that. It's impartial. It says, okay, I, I've heard what was said. I've, I've understood the circumstances. I see the situation. And now I'm going to act out of what's true, not out about who said what or what ideology or what tribe this came from. Wisdom from above is impartial. All, God, all truth is God's truth, and we may encounter it in unlikely places. Too often we act unwisely because we feel we have to defend our ideology or defend our tribe instead of defending what is true or wise. And finally, wisdom that is from above is sincere. Sincere means faithful, not deceitful or deceptive or disingenuous. It's not hypocritical. The word there is unhypocritus. If you say the Greek word unhypocritus enough times and you say it's fast enough, it starts to sound like unhypocritical. Unhypocritus, unhypocritical. That's because that's what exactly what it means. It's almost a transliteration. Wisdom that from, is from above is not hypocritical. It's authentic. And right now, our culture craves authenticity. Don't be afraid in your wisdom to be vulnerable, to let people see past your defenses, to let them see the sincerity of your heart. Because if there's one thing that is actually good about our current culture is the craving that it has for transparency and authenticity. And that's where we can be open and honest with people without fear, because our wisdom is from above. And our hope and our trust is in God, and so we don't need to fear being sincere or transparent or authentic. So this is how James describes wisdom from above, and we can take all of these different characteristics of godly wisdom, and we can apply them to how we're acting and, and how we are applying wisdom in our relationships in our life, and they are a test for us. But then he gives us the result in verse 18. He says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. A harvest of righteousness is what we are sowing. There's a reward and a warning here. Because if we are sowing unrighteousness, then that's what we will reap. Galatians 6, 8 and Job, Job 4, 8 speak to this. If we sow peace, we reap peace. If we sow discord, we reap corruption. And so James here, when referring to a harvest, he says, if, if you are sowing godly wisdom, heavenly wisdom that is from above, then there is a harvest of righteousness that comes. And it's interesting as I thought about this, when I think about our current culture, and we think about the church, and we think about Christianity, and we ask ourselves, is, is the church and is Christianity under increased antagonism from the world in recent years? And let's say that it is. Let's say that we can look around and say, yeah, it seems like there's greater antagonism but the question that James might ask is, is the increased antagonism that we are reaping maybe because the church has become increasingly militant rather than merciful in its engagement with culture? Has the church been sowing earthly wisdom in its engagement rather than heavenly wisdom? And are we reaping the antagonistic results because we haven't been sowing heavenly wisdom? We haven't been sowing righteousness, and so we're not reaping that in return. If we choose, even as Christians, to battle the world with earthly wisdom in tweets and websites and Facebook posts and just in general cultural engagement and articles and newspapers, if we engage the world with worldly wisdom instead of with heavenly wisdom by prayer and compassion and by serving, perhaps we are reaping a harvest of animosity because we've been sowing the wrong seeds 
in our engagement with the culture and in the politics of our time. The church is meant to be sowing seeds of peace that will grow into righteousness. And this is why, and I take this from that writer that I mentioned at the beginning. He, he worded it so great. He said that we are at war. We're not at war with those that oppose us, but that we are at war for them. And isn't that true? We're, we're not at war with the world. We're at war for the world. We want heavenly wisdom to prevail for their benefit. Remember back to Paul and his opponents in Corinth. They're, they drag him out of the temple. They beat him. They want to kill him. They want to throw him in jail. He says, brothers and fathers. Paul is not at war with those people. He's at war for them. Or how about our personal conflicts, the areas and relationships in your life where you need wisdom? Is animosity increasing rather than decreasing? Is the wedge growing larger rather than smaller? If so, maybe you need to step back and see whether you've been applying earthly wisdom rather than godly wisdom. Remember, I said at the beginning, there's a crucial warning and application in the escalating description that's found in verse 15. He says, this is not the wisdom that comes from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. You see that escalation? Earthly, unspiritual, then demonic. Not only is it earthly, but it's more than earthly. It's also lacking any spirit. And not only is it earthly and without spirit, but wisdom like that is actually demonic. And I don't think James throws that word around lightly or thoughtlessly. He never uses it anywhere else, and so that's notable. Why does James say this is demonic? Because James is in full agreement with Paul here, without a doubt. Just as Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is the bottom line in our engagement with others, especially those who oppose us. We are not at war with them. We're at war for them. We are at war with the spiritual battleground. You are either with the enemy or against him. And if you fight with the wisdom of the world you're fighting, then there's a harvest of righteous wisdom reaps for you a heavenly reward. Ultimately, it may win you new brothers and sisters for Christ as they see that you will not fight the way they fight. You will not engage the way the world engages. We are not citizens of this world. We're citizens from heaven is different than the wisdom of this world. That's what James 3, 16 has to teach us today. Let's pray. We thank you that we're not left blind and to grope for ourselves for wisdom, but that you promise give us the wisdom that we need. Father, we thank you that this is pure and peaceful and mercy, and we run into tribes and